What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Howard Lorman is a serial entrepreneur, an inventor, and the co-founder and CEO of Rome. In this conversation, we talk about productivity hacks, how to run meetings, how to make a more effective organization, what some of his favorite books are, why fiction may actually be worth spending your time on, what he watches on YouTube, and we generally pontificate about the future of remote work, corporations, communications, and the various software tools that you'll end up using. I really enjoyed this conversation with Howard. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Once you get done listening, jump on Twitter and let us know what you agreed with, what you disagreed with, what you liked, and what you didn't like. I always appreciate the feedback. Okay, here's my conversation with Howard Lerman. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Howard here with me. Uh, I thought a great place to start. You've taken companies public. You've got a great business today. Uh, you've been highly successful as an entrepreneur, but you have a bunch of productivity hacks, which sound like woo-woo nonsense, uh, but you think differently about how to be productive. And then you have these hacks that somebody can watch this right now and immediately go implement and probably like two or three X their productivity. So the first one is the idea of calendar zero. What the hell is calendar zero? Well, you know, it's interesting because we all treat our money as our most valuable asset. But the thing that is scarcest is our time. Yet we dole out our time every time we allow people to book things up on our calendar. Mm -hmm. And so think of your calendar like it's your bank account. And it starts with, you know, completely full when your calendar is empty. And every time someone books a meeting, you're, they're essentially taking a deposit out of your bank account. And people's calendars get filled up and clogged up. And we, uh, we end up with, particularly in business, with people inviting us to all kinds of stuff, which frankly often is pointless, mm -hmm. pointless meetings. So there's a lot of folk, there's a, there's a, there's a focus around a thing called inbox zero, which is how can I delete all the emails in my inbox? But what I've always focused on is to try to get to calendar zero. Now, this is not an absolute term. There's still things that are booked on my calendar. For example, this session today or a thing that I have to do a board meeting, but I try to really minimize what, what ends up on my calendar. And when I look at my day, the less I have on my calendar, I think the better off it's going to be. In fact, the wealthiest people I know tend to have the least amount of stuff on their calendars. Why is that? that that's like a shocking thing to me. And I've noticed that as well. The most successful people have the least amount of things on their calendar. Here's what successful people have figured out. Number one, you can accomplish a lot in a very short amount of time. I want to tell you a story about Teddy Roosevelt, okay. my favorite president. There's a lot of great books written about him. My favorite might be The Bully Pulpit by... Doris, of course, Kearns Goodwin. Uh, so Teddy Roosevelt used to hold five-minute meetings. Now, I want you to think about a five-minute meeting and when in business you've ever scheduled a five-minute meeting. No one would ever do that. There'd never be a five-minute meeting on your calendar. But the President of the United States used to put people in a line. He'd have them line up. He'd have them come in, and there'd be a clock. And 
when there's a five minute clock counting down, you'd be shocked. The forcing function of time helps you accomplish so much. People get to the point right away. Decisions are made. You move on to the next thing. And so one day I was reading about TR doing this and I was like, well, you know, if the POTUS can do this about matters of extraordinary national importance, I certainly in my company can do five minute meetings and learn about things that might be happening in our company and make decisions quickly because the decisions I'm making for a software company in no way are as important as the decisions that were made uh, in matters of national interest. So, uh, so I adopted these and we started a, a, a thing at Yex called Teddy Roosevelt meetings. Teddy Roosevelt meetings are an hour or two hours. People sign up for a five minute block. I might say travel to a London office. There might be a hundred people in the London office. I would meet with all hundred people in 500 minutes. Here's how a five minute meeting works. Person comes in, sits down. I'm really careful to not make eye contact with the person mm. when they're in the meeting. Cause I found that when you look down and take notes, people tell you more. So I'm, you know, taking notes and they, they begin to talk to me about what's going on. After 10 or 20 meetings, you get a really great sense of what's going on without doing these big 30 or 60 minute meetings and bringing a lot of people together. And so five minute meetings are an incredibly effective way to, uh, to really become effective and get to, to calendar zero. It's funny, the original inventors of short meeting times were lawyers. If you've ever looked at your legal bill, you'll note that lawyers bill you in six minute increments, one tenth of an hour. So they are clearly tracking their time and billing you in these little bits of, you know, six minute kind of meeting times. Um, so the other thing I've done is there's, it's funny, you know, each year when a lot of times when private equity buys a company, they, they take out the company and they try to take out all the costs. And so they have zero based budgeting, 3G capital is famous mm -hmm. for doing this. And so they cut out everything each year and then you have to rebuild your budget back up from zero. They do that for, for money. I think people should do that for their time. Mm -hmm. So constantly I look at my calendar and I just delete stuff. Mm -hmm. So this is like doing zero based time budgeting for your calendar. And one of the very first things to go on my calendar, and I figured this trick out a long time ago, there is a enormous focus in companies and maybe you pomp in your companies do one-on-one -on -one sort of weekly check-ins with your staff. Like, We'll do half an hour with this person, half an hour with this person once a week. And when you do that, you know, and I also like to have a pretty flat organization. So I might have in my company 15 or 20 direct reports. Now, if I spend an hour with every person every week, all of a sudden, literally half of your, you know, 40 hour traditional working week is eaten up by these one on one meetings. Also, one-on-one -on -one meetings slow people down. Mm -hmm. So if you and I have a calendar time on the block and I need to tell you something right now, I might say, you know, I have a meeting with Pomp tomorrow. I'm going to wait till tomorrow to give him this critical piece of information. Mm -hmm. So not only are you clogging your calendar up with one-on-one -on -one meetings, you're also actually slowing down information. So mm -hmm. a different paradigm in a better way 
is to say, let's have no one-on-one meetings with people, but instead let's talk to each other as necessary. So if I need to talk to you, like I'm going to tell you, right? I'm going to come find you. And if you need to talk to me, my door is always open. Come find me. Let's talk ad hoc. Jeff Bezos does not do one-on-one meetings. He won't meet with people. He only will meet in small groups because he knows, number two, that in addition to slowing down information, one-on-one meetings that are recurring tend to become not work-focused and you begin to go into other places. I remember I was given this advice, always have one-on-one meetings with your direct reports. And I used to be sitting there and after like the third one, they tended to become kind of therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like if you need therapy, like I'm not your guy, you know, (laughs) and a lot of times people walk in and be like, how's it going? This isn't a one-on-one meeting with a team member. And they say, I'm doing great. Fine. I'm like, are you sure? And they're like, well, I guess, I guess now that you mentioned it, I can think of some things that aren't going great. Mm -hmm. And there's just no reason to, to add that in, to slow people down to do this. So I, I clear out all recurring one-on-ones with people in addition to having five-minute quick meetings. I think ad hoc is better than recurring. Recurring meetings, I don't know if you saw Shopify. Mm-hmm. Just last week, Toby, he tweets, you know, recurring meetings are a bug. <laughs> and Shopify literally wiped all of their recurring meetings off the calendar. Now, think about, I mean, how many employees does Shopify have? I'm guessing thousands thousands 10,000 let's say how many meeting minutes do you think they saved from just wiping every single recurring meeting off the calendar and it millions it, and and their cost at shopify is you know their their primary non cogs cost has got to non server cost has got to be people mm-hmm. so they just increase their productivity tremendously now some of that will come back but you know, wiping calendars, wiping, you know, wiping your calendar clean. You'll never get to calendar zero, but I am a huge fan of trying to get to really, really short, crisp meetings. You can get done a lot when you have a little bit of time and time is the ultimate forcing function as, uh, as, as death, you know, looks upon us. So there, there's two things that immediately come to mind. The first is, uh, when I started to say no to meetings, um, I thought, or, or maybe it was in hindsight, I realized there's momentum to it. Yeah. When you start saying yes, you say yes more often. When you start saying no, you say no more often. And, and there's like a momentum to it for sure. Uh, and so I would say no, but, and the but was, but send me an email with exactly what the uh, information is, what the ask is or whatever, and I'll quickly get back to you. And what I found was not only did I save time for me and the other individual, but also I got the information in a much more digestible manner because they were forced to write it down. Right. And so usually what happens in these like uh, kind of one-off meetings, not the recurring one-on-one meetings, but but just somebody say, hey, I, you know, do you have 30 minutes? I'd, I'd love to talk to you about something is they'd kind of come in and they would be like, well, there's this thing and then this thing. And then, oh, wait, I forgot about this. And oh, oh, wait, hold on. You don't have this context. And they were like all over the place. But by having to write it down, it was like yeah. very clear. Like, listen, yeah. you're going to send me this email. This is the only context no I have. If it's not in here, then I don't have that context. And so it made the uh, quality of the decisions that I would make better as well. Right. So it was kind of a double win. And then the second thing was on the calendar uh, at the start of this year, I went through uh, and I did this like huge calendar audit. Now, there's two types of audits that uh, I've done. One is every week, um, the executive assistant that I work with, she puts together a report. And 
I got the template from Mateo over at Eight Sleep. I think mm -hmm. he actually stole it from somewhere else, so I don't want to give him too much credit. <laughs> um, but what we basically do is we go through and we characterize every single, uh, I'm sorry, categorize every single minute of my week. And we know what is for what business, what is what activity, all this stuff. And at the end of the week, I get this report and it tells me, you spent 10 hours doing this, you spent 20 hours doing yeah. this. And we try to make adjustments. And it's right. very clear, like how I'm investing my time is a direct reflection of what is going to happen. And so if there's a business that's struggling and I'm only spending two hours a week on it, well, we probably should spend more time on that, right? And vice versa. So that like week or by week Or you should audit, kill that business and then spend all of your time <laughs> on the one that's doing well. Yes. So like <laughs> literally we have those conversations, right? Of like, is this not worth spending any time right. on? So that's the week by week. But then at the beginning of the year, I did what I thought of more as like a macro audit. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at the macro of what I was doing, I realized the structure of my day was off. And what had happened was over time, over about a year, I had gotten what I call morning creep. So I know myself in that when I write, when I think, when I am most productive is in the morning. And so from the time I wake up to about 11 or 12 o'clock, I will put myself up against anyone. I could be hyper productive. Right. And I can think very clearly, and that's the best time I write. But over the last year, I started to take meetings at 11, 1030, 10, 930, 9, to the point where I was taking meetings at 8 a.m. <laughs> and so we basically just went back to the drawing board and we said, okay, basically the zero-based time budget, how do I want to spend every hour of the day? And rather than go to calendar zero, we actually did it, uh, tried to get to the same thing, but we did it in a different way. We blocked the times. So from eight to 11, no meetings, no calls, right? And we've done it in a way where like everyone knows he is doing X during this block of time. Then from 11 to two, there's a block of time. And then two to four is when I'll take the meetings right. or the calls. And so when you, you kind of do that, what it also does is it forces everyone in the organization, like damn, he's only gonna spend two hours meeting with anyone in the organization today. Is it really worth five minutes 30 minutes of that two hour block. And so what happens is you're pushing decision-making, you're pushing responsibility to everyone else. And from what I've seen so far, it makes the organization operate much more productively, but also it allows for uh, people to gain confidence that like they can do things without having to come to you, I think. That is absolutely true. People end up making more decisions. They get to the point faster. And, you know, the human brain works on chunking. The human brain works on being able to, you know, categorize things and when when they can categorize things at a higher level that's the executive function that you want your team to be doing and making those decisions mm -hmm. in um good profit by charles Koch, i know you and i share this love of reading and uh, for those that don't know uh howard and i whenever we're reading a book we like take a picture and send it to each other and uh we it's always like a 50 50 i already read that one yeah. or like when you get done tell me if it's good or not right, right? um but in good profit one of the things that I, I took away from it is they treat the employees like entrepreneurs what that means is that they try to delegate decision making down the decision making it can only be high quality if everyone is aligned on what the vision is right, right? so this is where we're all going you're a talented person help us get there and, and make the decisions that will do that but then they also compensate people on a kind of a commensurate uh, um, you know, perspective as well. And they say, look, if you deliver a certain amount of value to the business, you are going to get paid more than if you deliver less value. And so how do you structure both Yext, which you took public, and then yeah. you've got a new business, Rome. How do you think about this like uh, delegation of decision making, but also then compensating people right. based on value they create? Right. Well, there's a lot packed into that question. Let me start 
just go back 30 seconds and say, I was really glad to hear you talking about working your day. We just got through the new year and everyone asked me, what are your new year's resolutions? And frankly, I do not have new year's resolutions. I've not made new year's resolutions in a very long time. Uh, I make adjustments constantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end, it just so, you know, sort of December 31st or January 1st just so happens to be like a random day. Uh, but what I do try to focus on instead of making annual goals, which everyone has annual goals, but you, you try to focus on the daily routine. And if you can build a great daily routine, mm-hmm. then I believe the longer term outcomes can happen in a better way. So um, I'm not a morning person. You're a morning thinker. I mean, I know because you're up so early and we're all getting your uh, emails and stuff early in the morning. Uh, you know, I'm a night thinker. But I try to build my day so that I do something physical, so I do something intellectually challenging. So I take a Mandarin lesson probably three times a week, that kind of thing. Um, And then, you know, once I've done those two things, then I feel like I'm ready to take on anything. So I think instead of for people focusing on their uh, annual goals, focusing on their daily routine is how the Stoics would do it Mm -hmm. and being able to build that up. um, And it's funny also because you, you blocked off your time. I think the the analogy there, going back to sort of time being money, would be just like that's how you've chosen to allocate your investment portfolio. Mm-hmm. And you've said, okay, I'm taking you know this particular piece of my investment portfolio, which is my time, and saying I'm going to put that in. I'm just making this up. And the S and P 500, which would be one part, another part would be you know allocated like this. So, uh, you know, smart people, the the most successful people I know, think about their time just like you just said, which is we're going to allocate it like it was our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're different asset classes and, you know, different parts of the time are worth different parts. But the, the way they think about it is totally by morning, by time, when they know they're most productive, least productive. And so all that kind of stuff. Now, shifting gears to your next question about uh, Charles Koch and, uh, you know, his market-based management philosophy, I think is what he called it. He, was even, he even registered the trademark on it. So I'm, I'm nervous that I might get a lawsuit just by... Uh, uh, bringing it up in this in this conversation we're having, that was a great book. I I enjoy reading about him. He really had a lot of advantages in starting a company. Um, you know, he I I don't remember the exact story, but I think his dad started the company, and then he definitely he and his brother took it. You know, sort Basically of his dad started it, and right. then they came in and they were like, "Hey, do you want to grow it?" And his dad was like, "Ah, oh, we got a good thing going." And his dad passed away, and right. then him and his brother, it. It, right. you know, took it to the I think they're the second largest privately held company in the world now. Yep. What's the largest, Mars? Cargill, I Cargill. think. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. or at least in the United States. Uh, Cargill, it. I think, is larger. Um, and it's estimated that Coke Industries, uh, I think the latest number I saw was $125 billion in annual right. revenue. Yeah. You know, so we talked about how they empower people and how they compensate people. And, you know, you asked how we did that at Yax and how we do that at Rome. I mean, the one thing I've learned being an entrepreneur and going from zero to one and beyond and now back to zero to one again is just when you're – in different phases of a company's life cycle, you do different things. So when you're running in a $125 billion annual company, he's operating at such a high level that he's just trying to you know, focus on culture pretty much and probably some M&A. Um, but the, the fact is that running a private company, which I think is kind of the point, is a lot different than running a public company. I ran a public company for five and a half years. I did 22 earnings calls. I did you know, dozen appearances on CNBC and it's a lot different running a private company uh, where you can 
take a little bit of a longer term focus than, you know, having to explain to Jim Cramer why EPS is off a tenth of a point quarter of a quarter due to currency fluctuations in Europe, which is definitely not my personal strong suit. Um, so, you know, when you're running a private company, you, you're not accountable <laughs> for that. So the way you compensate your people is totally different. When you're in a public, particularly in tech, you give out these RSUs, which is essentially stock in the company. And we can talk about stock compensation in a second because I have a, I have a whole philosophy on this too. Um, but the RSUs, people pretty much treat them as cash. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, it's a way for a company to, you know, give people an incentive. But the reality is that um, it tends to just be cash. Now you get them in the future and they invest in the future. So of course, everyone wants the, the stock price to be higher. But, you know, when you're running a private company, if you get a piece of the profit or something like that, you're, you're absolutely incentivized completely differently. And the company itself is not run on a quarter by quarter basis. I'm sure they look at their quarterly financials, but you are not doing things that, you know, you're thinking about this quarter a lot. Like, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, when you're running a public company, you're definitely thinking about your sales this quarter. When you ran the private company and then took it public, mm -hmm. is that the biggest difference that you saw was like that uh, quarterly earnings report? Actually, no. Okay. The biggest difference between running a, and again, it's we're talking about the size here. Mm -hmm. So once you get to, I'm just making up a number, 100 million of recurring. At that number, you're a pretty big company. You can be public or not. The biggest difference, in addition to, you know, the, the quarterly earnings call is the investor base. Mm. So when you're private, your investor base is VCs and entrepreneurs, whoever you have in your cap table. And they share one thing. They all want you to succeed. When you're public, you learn quickly that hedge funds and even famous investment houses are not all long only. And the thing is, you don't know when you're meeting with an investor if they're long on you or they're short on you. Then it gets even more complicated. They don't disclose that? Absolutely not. Mm. Absolutely not. Because um, they're not allowed to or because that would then give away what they consider to be a potential edge in learning something? You know, it's funny. The way that the reporting works, I'm pretty sure you can see if people have shares. And if they've short your shares, you can't tell if they own your shares or they've shorted your shares. Mm. So it's an interesting kind of thing to be sitting there saying, are, you know, are these people with us or against us? When you're private, everyone's with you. And mm -hmm. it's either going to be a big outcome or it's not. Mm -hmm. And they're all taking that sort of binary risk. When you're public, it's, uh, you know, people might not be with you. And by the way, they might be with you for a minute. That's the other thing. When you're private, your VCs, you know, they're with you for eight years mm -hmm. while they, you know, kind of have the whole life cycle with you. People could come in for a minute. I had, I had shareholders come in. They buy the stock. They, you know, get in the stock and they'd be there for a quarter. I'd meet with them. They'd say, this is great. Then I'd meet with them a quarter later. They say, we sold out, but thanks. Mm -hmm. We appreciate you, you know, making us 8% this quarter or something mm -hmm. like that. So they're in and out too. And so there's a lot of timing that you don't really think about when you're, you know, a private company with long-term shareholders. There's just, there's not a long-term, there are long-term shareholders and you know who they are. Often though, those same long-term shareholders will own your stock, but then they also do complex stuff like loaning out to shorts. And so they make money on that too. So there's a whole weird yeah, sort of it's very complex. Very complex.
When you start thinking about overlaying the productivity hacks of your day yeah. to the organization, what are some of the things that you would do in an organization outside of just the structure of meetings that would increase the productivity of the organization? Hey guys, I hope that you're enjoying this interview. Before we continue, I wanna quickly remind you, I'm hosting a conference March 4th at the Miami Beach Convention Center. That's right, it's a big venue for a big event. On March 4th, I'm bringing together some of the absolute fan favorite guests from the podcast and this show, and we're gonna debate ideas. The event is called Lyceum Miami. The Lyceum was the public gymnasium in Athens, Greece. That ancient gymnasium was important because it's a place where people from all walks of life came together to have a war of ideas. You were able to not only participate in the debates, but also people could sit and watch some of the smartest people in the world talk about important issues. That's what we're gonna be doing on March 4th at the Miami Beach Convention Center. If you wanna join us, go to lyceummiami.com or click on the link in the description and I'd love to see you there. Okay, let's get back to this conversation. Well, you know, I think that it depends on with your pre or post product market fit. Okay. And pre-product market fit, it's super important to be very close to your customers. I want to be talking to my customers all the time. In fact, you know, my new company, Rome, we have this genius bar where we engage with all of our customers all the time and they can chat with us. It's like a support bar. They can come in. We offer them live support. If they're troubleshooting something, we'll show up to their Rome and talk to them about that. So I think pre-product market fit, the most important thing is to talk to your customers. And by the way, the vast majority of startups are pre-product market fit. Mm -hmm. They Even if they think that they have product market fit, when the founders have used their sort of sales muscle to close some deals you know, from people they know, that's not true product market fit. Mm -hmm. Product market fit, I think, is best described as when your ability to keep up with demand is limited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so most startups are actually not there. So pre-product market fit, you need to be kind of taking in as much signal as you can from customers, which means observing, talking, tweaking things, seeing what happens, experimentation. Post-product market fit, for most tech startups, I'm talking about software here, it becomes all about go to market. And so that's kind of a whole different ball game. And so, okay, we have a product that works, now how are we gonna keep up with the demand? We're gonna hire a CRO, and we're gonna hire a salesperson, we're gonna hire a vice president of sales, we're gonna hire sales engineers, we're gonna hire sales enablement people, we gotta train these people, we're gonna have a whole operation devoted to how to head a customer success, how to customer support, we're gonna hire you know analysts to be looking at all these different kinds of things. And so then, then the ball game becomes uh, much more about go to market. Mm -hmm. and. That's an entirely different phase of the company. And it's almost like running a military mm -hmm. at that point. I mean, it's like you have these pods of people and you have, you know, when you're pre-product market fit and you have a, a tight team, I'm just making up a number of 12 people, designers, engineers, you're all in there. It's primordial soup. You're using your creativity to come up with what is the winning formula mm -hmm. that is going to get the most possible customers to buy, you, you know, use and love and buy our product. Once you get past that, then you have to hire in like the generals and the colonels to kind of figure out how to put teams of salespeople together. It looks like the military because you're dividing up territories. You know, who's got this territory? Who's got the Southwest territory? Who's got Europe? Who's got Japan? You know, then you go once you once you get the U.S., then you go international. So um, so in terms of productivity hacks. You know, it's it <laughs> you really have to just rely on your people. Because just hire great people and then basically get out of their way. It's, it's, I mean, it, especially if you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my case, when it came to, comes to scaling, go to market, like 
I legitimately don't know what I'm doing there. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to find great people. And I did that with hiring Jim Steele and Dave Roninsky, who ran sales at Salesforce. Jim was the president of Salesforce. Dave was right with Jim and running that. And so those guys came over to Yext and helped us build out a real Salesforce, real professional Salesforce. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you read Mark Benioff's book, Behind the Cloud, you, there's an article, uh, a whole chapter about Dave and Jim. So, you know, it's funny though, because all the advice you get as an entrepreneur is you hire the experts and get out of the way. And I did that our, with our CFO. I hired Steve Cakebread, who was the CFO of Salesforce and mm -hmm. took them public in 2003. And so, you know, got out of the way, but at the same time you lose control. Mm. So you don't know how things work like it used to. You, 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 you know, when you hire your professional sales force, they get in between you and the customer, not intentionally, but that's just what happens mm. because it's the size and scale. And so how do you manage that? Like well, you're, you're hiring these experts, yeah. you're deferring to them, but ultimately you're still responsible. If, yeah. thing, if things doesn't go right, or let's say the CFO made a mistake, like, People, yeah, they're like, okay, the CFO made a mistake, but like you're the CEO of the business. So yeah. how do you kind of give them the space to run and, and do what they do best and be an expert, but also kind of have the controls in place, whether it's on the financial side, sales yeah. side, whatever, where you feel still feel like you you kind of understand what's happening. You know, on on the the C, first off, don't hire a CFO that's going to make a mistake. You don't want your CFO to make a mistake. You, you can have your salespeople make a mistake. You don't want general counsel or CFO to make a mistake. They they don't they don't get to make a mistake. They, they fortunately have, you know, a controller, auditors, and then they have auditors that are looking at their work to double check it. And then they even have the auditors have auditors that are auditing the auditors, mm -hmm. internal audit, making sure that they also are not making a mistake. Mm -hmm. You can make mistakes in sales. You can make mistakes in R&D, but just don't make a mistake when it comes to financial reporting. And mm -hmm. there's there's all kinds of things to make sure that 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 is unlikely to happen. But putting that stuff in, putting those controls in slows you down. It mm -hmm. changes your business. You don't, you know, when we started early days at Yex, we used to do these deal, you know, you could, we would do all kinds of deals to win customers and they'd look different and they're, you know, different payment terms, all different types of structures and stuff. You have to standardize. And so standardizing gives you those controls, but it at the same time slows you down. Mm -hmm. When you start to see um, the meetings and then you start to see the organization, you're hiring the right people. Yeah. What is the biggest mistake you ever made in business? The biggest mistake I ever made in business was in 20, March of 2020 when I decided and announced to the company right after the pandemic that I would not lay anybody off. Ooh, interesting. So that was uh, like a pride thing in terms of I don't want to lay anyone off. So like, let me say it and I'll like force it into reality or, or what was going through your head? We had 1500 people. Pandemic hit. You have all these media reports of, you know, and again, you have to go mentally back to covid March of 2020, now where we are today. Complete uncertainty, you know, pictures of people in New York, hospital beds piling up, you know, Italia, you know, Italy, everyone's whatever. So everyone's freaking out, total uncertainty. I announced to the company, we will not lay, any, your jobs are all safe. We will not lay anybody off. You will, uh, we're not going to anybody a raise this year. So mm -hmm. everyone's salary is going to stay flat year over year. But in return for that, it seems like the human thing to do right now is to guarantee you all your jobs and your health insurance during a pandemic. I'm not going to put anybody out in the street. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I was lauded. You know, I was everyone was like, that's a great, you know, the employee base thought that was great. Meanwhile, Airbnb laid off, ten, you know, thousands of people, yeah, thousands of people. people. They later that year had a $100 billion IPO mm -hmm. and my big mistake was it turned out that
that in not laying anybody off and telling everybody we weren't going to lay anybody off, that it was a performance management nightmare because a lot of the good people that didn't get a raise were like, wait a minute, I can go to a different company and switch jobs and get a raise. So why would I stay here? So mm. your loyalty was not rewarded, number one. And then number two, a lot of the people that were poor or mediocre performance were like, performers were like, woohoo, I can just like do nothing and I won't get laid off. And so it gave people an excuse to do nothing. And you basically so, removed the the uh, carrot and the stick. It's a bad idea to take the carrot and the stick away. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. And so did you have to go back and correct it at some point? You know, you, you, do, you do correct it and you have to correct it over time. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of thing that you can do quickly. I think what hurt me most was not that the people who didn't perform well didn't, you know, kept not performing well. It was the people that were the, the best performers that did that left that mm -hmm. didn't show any loyalty that hurt mm -hmm. me the most. Mm -hmm. Now, I will tell you Losing today, your best people was more painful than keeping your worst people. Yes. Like the worst people are already dragging you down. So like how much worse could they almost perform? Right. But losing your best people was a big blow. It was the fact that they showed no loyalty hmm. that I thought that in again, not everyone, not all the best people left. Some of the best people left. Mm -hmm. And when they would leave for a higher salary somewhere else, after we as a collective unit said, hey, we're going to protect all of our people here. You know, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. We're one team. They we're unwilling to share the sacrifice or burden a little bit. Mm -hmm. By the way, today, you know, <laughs> you see Salesforce laying people, you see all these layoffs happening. And mm -hmm. I just, you know, I just wouldn't have done that again. Mm -hmm. That was a that was a mistake. It was a mistake because it hurt the best people and it may have saved some of the, the worst people, but ultimately it it hurt the company too much. Yeah. And I would undo that if I could. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, when you think about Rome, the business you're building now, uh, I am very proud to be an investor. Um, uh, it is, I'm going to call it a Zoom killer. I don't know if you're going to call it that, but describe a little bit as to, we moved to this remote work world. Yeah. Zoom works. Yeah. It's fine. I use it every day. Yeah. Why even think about going after an area that, already has such a dominant player who is being positioned in the media and elsewhere as the disruptor, yep. right? So it's not that uh, Zoom is some, you know, 100 year old incumbent company that no one's tried to take it off. Like they kind of are like the startup that just made it. Right. And you guys are already coming right. after them. Well, let, let me just take a step back and tell you about what Rome is. So during March of 2020, when we were talking about, you know, who to lay off and what not to lay off, I one day set up a Zoom. And when you run a big company, or a small company, you're doing Zooms all the time. I put a hundred, you know, and the bigger the company, the longer and more boring the Zoom tends to be. Mm -hmm. And you're, you know, you set up those calendar invites where you add all the people and you add their email address in. And I was setting up a, a Zoom calendar invite and I think it was for a hundred people and I forgot to add someone. And when you forget to add someone to a Zoom in a remote world, that person does not exist. It's like they didn't know the meeting was supposed to happen. Like nobody told them, they just, they blissfully, ignorantly go about whatever they were doing and like they missed out. In the real world, if there was like a meeting going on with everyone and like a person walked into the office and saw all the people there, be like, oh, I'm probably supposed to be in there. Mm -hmm. So 
it was at that moment that I had this flash of insight, which was, well, what if there was a bird's eye view of all the meetings going on in a company at the same time that everyone could see? Just like in the real world, you walk into an office, I walked into your office here, I see it's a bustling office. There's people talking to all kinds of people here. There's, you know, I see who's in, who's not in, who's talking to who, and I get a sense for what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. We lost all that when we went to Slack and Zoom. Mm -hmm. You you know, and what Zoom did a phenomenal job, better than anybody in the world. Zoom was the first video conferencing technology that worked. And Eric rewrote the video Kodak. He didn't use the existing stuff in web browsers, which didn't really work that well. Mm -hmm. He rebuilt the whole Kodak from scratch and, you know, famously left Cisco and that whole thing. So, so they solved the video conferencing technology problem. Mm -hmm. But what they completely failed to solve or didn't attempt to endeavor to solve was the workflow. And so what we have today is this amazing technology, but our workflow around it's totally broken. Things that used to take two people, you know, five minutes in the office to get done right now. Hey, I walk pump. Can you help me with this thing? We, we do it like we're done now is being scheduled for a zoom call for 60 minutes with nine in, next week. And so the, and then the other thing about this, that's funny is, you know, when you're scheduling a zoom call for 60 minutes next week, you know, I put you on, I put you on it and it's like, well, I should probably be inclusive. I'll just invite everyone to it. And so you end up, this is the calendar clutter we were talking about before. The workflow is backwards. The workflow is broken. There's too many meetings. The meetings are too long. Things that, you know, could be done right now are being scheduled next week. So it's slowing companies down. And so we invented Rome. Rome is a cloud headquarters. That's the positioning for it. Cloud HQ. It does three things. It, uh, it makes companies, it gets, it helps them reduce the number of meetings they have. The average meeting time in Rome is eight minutes. Wow. Eight minute meetings, not down to six like lawyers. But well, we're you know, close. we're gonna we're gonna try to <laughs> get down to five. All right, um, and I'll talk about more about the meetings for a second. Second thing it does it makes companies feel more connected. Ninety percent of people that use Rome feel more connected to their company. Mm -hmm. You know, in a remote company or a hybrid company or even a distributed company. And let me be clear, Rome is not just for remote or hybrid companies, the fact is any company that gets big enough becomes distributed. The X head offices from Berlin to Beijing, mm -hmm. we're all over the place. So we put companies together under one roof. Anyone from anywhere can see everyone and mm -hmm. see who's meeting with who and pop around. And so this vision is this bird's eye view of the whole company, everyone in one HQ from anywhere. And then the third thing, and we'll talk about this in a second about SaaS and my views on SaaS, we have a business model innovation. We only charge for active user. So where most SaaS companies would say, you signed up 20 people, you owe me X dollars times 20 people per month in perpetuity. You say, no, yes, you signed up 20 people, but only 14 of them actually logged in this month or this week. And so therefore you owe me for 14, not for the 20. You got it. And it's paid at the end of the month as opposed to SaaS, which says you have to prepay us. You have to guess how many licenses you're going to need for this year, 50? Mm -hmm. Well, you're going to grow. Okay. 60, you know, and there's a salesperson sitting there trying to upsell you more and more and more 60, 70, 80. And then, okay, it's a hundred, you know, bucks a year per user or whatever. You have to prepay that up front mm -hmm. for the year. We say we're going to do active user pricing. It's an all in one bundle. So we're going to include the ability to do chat and video conferencing, all this other stuff. By the time you add up the other apps that we can get you out of by using Rome, it's 2000 bucks a year for them it's 120 bucks per active user only for Rome. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, we have a business model innovation here too. And I, and I worry by the way, a lot about other SaaS companies that have kind of a lot of unused licenses sitting around as companies try to get more efficient. They're going to just cut that stuff out. Of course. Yeah. If, if you're not, if you're paying for something and not using it right now and over the next six months, there's a lot of companies trying to figure out where those are in the company. It, it reminds me a lot of the Groupon breakage. Groupon would sell, you know, a hundred Groupons or whatever, and then only 30 of them would be redeemed. And that's how they literally made all, that's how the merchants for Groupon made all their money. They could mm -hmm. discount it so much knowing people would buy it and never redeem. Mm -hmm. So I worry about that in SaaS. You see that in SaaS a lot. Mm -hmm. But Rome, you know, our, our ability to, let, and let's talk about meeting minutes for a second. So I said the average meeting time in Rome is eight minutes long. Mm -hmm. And it's because when you use this and you have to see it, you're in this immersive HQ and it's a 2D HQ. You can see who's meeting with who. I see Pomp is talking to a designer and I know, oh, I'm supposed to talk to those two people about something. I pop in for two minutes and we have a quick conversation. It's serendipitous. It's ad hoc. I needed to tell you guys about something. And we may or may not be pre or post product market fit, but I'm able to have that conversation with you as I, as I need to have that conversation with you. So I've got the demo. I, yeah. I uh, uh, went, you showed it to me and, and let me do my best maybe to describe uh, from the outsider's view, kind of the, the initial experience was uh, you can look and see, I'll call it a floor plan. You guys yep. uh, probably call it something else, but um, on a floor plan, what you can see is everyone has kind of their own offices. And so there's Howard's office or my office. So all the way down the line. Uh, and then there are conference rooms on this floor plan where multiple people can all meet. Uh, but you could also meet in one person office. So like I could come to Howard's office, virtually knock on the door. You say, yep, come in. We talk. I leave. I go back to my office. Or we could say, hey, me, you and five other people, let's go to this conference room and we move over. So literally like you would do in the real world, just now you're doing this virtual experience. And the uh, kind of, I'll call it auto magically, uh, all of the people's video feeds that are in whatever the one-on-one -on -one meeting or the group meeting, it just works, yeah. right? When you go into the room, bam, everyone's connected and like you can just talk uh, kind of in that serendipitous way. Right. But then uh, it, probably a little bit of showmanship on your part. Uh, you were like, hey, let's go to the theater. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is the theater? And you basically uh, sent a message to your entire team and you're like, hey guys, meet me and Pomp in the theater. And everyone kind of virtually moseyed their way over and they end up in this uh, theater section. And literally you could go on stage and you could hold a company all hands with everyone in the entire company. And then they also could react. And so while you were talking, I think they were throwing tomatoes at you. Yes, they definitely. were doing all kinds of different There's things. There's a boot icon to kick me off the stage. Yes, yeah. they could boot you off the stage. Yeah. Like, like it's very interactive right. in, in terms of how it would be in the real world. And so what's fascinating about this is uh, your comment that this is not just remote teams that are dealing with this, right? When I worked at Facebook, I don't know, I think I joined, there was like 3,500 people. By the time I left, there's 12,000. Yeah. Well, guess what? We would have meetings. I, there was one meeting that's like now this infamous meeting in, in the growth world where uh, it was all, a bunch of growth people would come and a bunch of people from the ads team. And this is when Facebook 2014, like it just exploded. Right. And what we would do is we would have the people in uh, Menlo Park. Uh, we would have some people dial in from New York, but we also would have people in London. So the London team, the New York team, and the Menlo Park team were all in this meeting together. And in the Menlo Park physical location, people were sitting at the conference room table, but there were so many people in the meeting that then there was benches around the uh, edges of the room and people filled those up to the point where the guy who used to run the meetings, his name is Mike Kudak, used to sit on top of a filing cabinet. 
<laughs> and like run the meeting, yeah. right? And and that's how Pacto was. But then we had all the virtual stuff. Right. And you could imagine the, this is way before anyone realized like, hey, you should care about the people on video. Right. Like it was kind of like the meeting was happening in the room and everyone else was just like kind of sort of there. Right. Maybe they would chime in when right. needed. Right. It feels like if we had something like this, that meeting would be very, very different today because you would now have the people in the room and the people remotely all interacting right. in kind of a much more even playing field. Right. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, the fact is any company that gets successful gets distributed. So, you know, it's not about five people remote or 50 people remote or 500 people. Any successful operation requires people all over the world. And that's what allows companies to go to market in different countries and different regions and have sales reps. People are in WeWorks. People are in, uh, you know, in the field. People are doctors in offices or retail stores. And, you know, you want to be able to link everyone in the company together in one HQ to make that company, to, to bring that, to you know, to, to really bring that company together and help them feel more connected and be able to reduce meetings and stuff. Um, but, you know, in the old world, it used to be that I would try to schedule a 60 minute meeting with someone. And now I can just go right over, see that, see that they're available, knock on their door, have the conversation with them and we're done. And, um, and, you know, getting into hybrid for a second, there's a lot of opportunities. Let me talk about hybrid. I think the Zoom room concept where there's eight people in a physical room and there's a TV with eight people dialed in like the Brady Bunch on Zoom is fundamentally broken. Why? Because if we're all in a conference room and the six of us or eight of us, let's say we're in there and there's eight people dialed in and they all get a head on a screen. If I'm talking, my head always goes over to the TV. I'm always mm -hmm. looking at the TV, even if you're right in front of me and I'm talking to you because I want to make sure they can see my face. It's, a, it's an awkward interaction. Now, it technically, again, this is an example of technically works, mm -hmm. but humanly, you know, it's an it's a inhuman way to, to interact. And I think a better approach, just to give you an idea of something that could feel more natural. Well, actually, let me take a step back. That approach was designed by AT&T for the 1970s video phone, mm -hmm. the original video phone for the World Fair. And it works really well when both conference rooms are exactly equal. Mm. Makes sense. Yeah. So there's like six people around one side, six people around the other side. There's a camera and we look like, you know, a circle. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it becomes multiple people on the screen with different heads from different places, everything becomes kind of uneven. And so a more natural approach would be you and I bring our, everyone brings their own device to the mm -hmm. meeting. Forget the TV, turn the TV off. You don't need the TV. You're in a conference room. Everyone has their laptop or their iPad and everyone has a camera on their own face. By the way, think of the experience for the people that are dialing in the old mm -hmm. way too. Like I, I can see like one screen, I see all these heads of other people that are dialed in and then there's one screen where all the people are in a semicircle around and I can't even see who's talking, it's too small. Like I can't figure out what's going on. So a more natural approach is bring your own device to the meeting and you sit there and like you have a, everyone has a camera on them. So right, right off the bat, every single human has a camera and is even on the screen. And then, uh, and then when I need to talk, like I can kind of, if I'm talking to you pomp and you're across from me, instead of looking at the TV to make sure that like the people over there can see me or whatever. So I can see them. I just like look at you and talk mm -hmm. <laughs> and I can look down and the camera is still on me. I don't have to move my head at all. I just, mm -hmm. I think the future of hybrid meetings is going to be people with their own device as opposed to 
a centralized big device where we all kind of have to look at it. Yeah. How much of um, the like video conferencing stuff is actually screwing up companies versus it's helpful? Like, is it a net positive or a net negative? Well, I'll give you an interesting fact about that, which is that the most popular meeting format by a factor of three to one in Rome is audio only mm -hmm. with screen share. So it's not just like, oh, I could call you. Sure, I can call you. But our offices are audio only. So there's an audio only room type. People pop in. I might need to chat with you. I don't need to turn the video on or whatever. Mm -hmm. I can worry about like whatever. I just go, hey, Pomp, can you help me with X? And you're like, yeah, the answer is Y. Or do you think about this? And I'm like, well, hold on. Let me show you what I'm doing. Pull my screen up. You can see my screen. We're just chatting, 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 audio only over. So audio only formats are 3X more popular than video on. And I think people, I think personally, the default should be audio only mm -hmm. and video can be there as necessary, but shouldn't be default video. And then you can default back to audio. I, um, the reason I asked that is it was like fun and novel at first, like, Oh, video, like, Oh, we're yeah. like on the computer, whatever. Right. Now I, Oh, hate... look at my bunny rabbit ears. Yeah. I can use the filter. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the video because yeah. it's like, this used to be a phone call. Right. Right. And then it became like a Zoom, which was default video. Right. And now I'm trying to, as much as possible, force back right. going to a thing to the point where I was like calling in, but then you can't see if they do want to pull something up. Yep. So uh, you basically, you have to get on through the app or online, you know, in front of the computer. Um, but also then they know that your video is off because it right. says your name rather than the number, right. like the whole thing, right? right? Well, like I said, we need to get back to technology that supports the workflow, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And your tech, you know, what you were doing before is like we would talk to each other and or call you as necessary. And now everything is anchored around Zoom technology, which is in which is encumbering our ability to interact with each other naturally mm -hmm. and therefore be creative. You went to a very uh, unique high school, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Tell us about uh, this high school in terms of uh, when you were showing me the demo the first time, you kept introducing me to people on the team like, went to TJ, went to TJ, went to TJ, right? Um, what, what's going on with this high school? Well, it must be something in the water. Uh, you know, I was really fortunate to grow up on the wrong side of the tracks in Virginia and then have an out in having gone to Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, which is a STEM high school. Uh, by the way, I'm super pro STEM. Um, and none of the companies I've ever created, whether it was Yext or Confide, which is a mobile messaging app I made, or Rome or anything else I've ever made would exist without TJ. And TJ was, you, know, you got to go back to, and again, the 80s here. It's like stranger things. You're, you know, riding your bike around the neighborhood. This is the the era. Uh, was founded in the DC area, I think, in partnership with corporations, because there was a view of corporations, and again, these are government contractors. Take mm -hmm. Lockheed Martin, mm -hmm. with the view that science, technology, engineering, and math was the path forward to make and keep, you know. America, particularly the military, to have the most cutting edge stuff. Mm -hmm. And so in the DC area, you have all these government contractors selling to the government, the federal government. A lot of them live in Northern Virginia. And so this idea of TJ was, was incubated and formed and it became the top high school in the nation. And the way that, and that's an objective measure, but you know, uh, the way that you got into TJ was pretty simple. You 
in eighth grade, you took a test. It was a math test. And I'm pretty sure they just literally didn't look at anything else. There was no, you know, it wasn't like there was an English component. Mm, <laughs> it was literally I, just math. It was literally just, you know, prob- like math problems. And, uh, and then they cut, they cut off the top, you know, four or 5% of people that took the tests and they were, they got the letter and they were admitted. And there was no interview process. There was no, it wasn't like if you were good at sports, you got in. It wasn't like if you excelled at the flute that you would, you know, be help build this, you know, community of excellence or whatever. It was literally just STEM. And the consequence of that pomp was you had this bubble of people that were not there because they wanted to get into Harvard that were not there because they wanted to get to the best school and escape and have a better life and make the most money and become a McKinsey consultant or whatever people do. But they were there because they loved STEM. They were there because they literally, things like a supercomputer, which was pretty awesome back in, you know, 1998 when I went to high school, which was in our, uh, in our computer lab, Things like that, like got people going and they would just like hang out there all day. Mm. And so this vibe, I, I imagine it was a little bit like Stanford, um, you know, 20 years ago, but it was this, this vibe of everybody just loving STEM and pure no, with, with no, with no, it wasn't commercially focused at all. It wasn't commercially focused and it wasn't like a stepping stone to anything else. It was just love of STEM. Whether it was robotics, whether it was computer science, whether it was mathematics. Um, and so the people there were really self-selected for that and that alone. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of really, really, really great people there. Uh, there's been some notable alums. Vlad Tenov uh, went to TJ. Um, he's much younger than me, of course. Um, there's other alums that have gone through there, but I met my co-founders at Yext and at Rome and at Confide at TJ. And um, it has continued to serve as a really tremendous uh, recruiting bed for us in, in my career where, you know, we know if someone was a sysadmin at TJ, which is like the highest honor, like the, the, the students there like ran the, the school networks. Really? It's actually funny. I had a call with the principal a couple of weeks ago. And they were like, I'm sorry, like we can't use Rome. It's not approved by FCPS to, you know, it's not a technology that's approved. And I was just like chuckling to myself. Like all I had to do was like ask a sysadmin and like Rome would be through the network in like one second. Mm-hmm. Um, Did but you do it? No, I didn't want to put anybody up to that. We just, they actually, but here's what I did. They said, sorry, we can't use Rome. Can we use, you know, the one approved technology from the school board is, is Zoom. Can we use that? And I said, I'm sorry, Zoom is not approved technology for us to use at Rome. So, so what did you do? A phone call? Phone call. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense though. Yeah. When you think of a school like that, yeah. should we have more of them? Or is I, it important to have like a couple of them that are, you know, have like the uh, difficulty to get in and you couldn't replicate 10,000 across right. the country? Well, they're changed. They're, 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 this is a, a hot button issue right now. And okay. I am not a Northern Virginia school board political expert. But what I will say is that it does appear that they've changed the admissions process to focus less on STEM, pure STEM, and more on helping, you know, people escape and get into a good college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
the school was not founded to be a college preparatory institute. Like you want to go to like a good college or you want to go to Princeton. I don't know. Go to St. Albans. I'm just making this up. I don't know. But this, this place was like just a place to go and, you know, learn about STEM and get into that. My view is that American exceptionalism is fundamentally driven by STEM mm -hmm. and that the reason that we have the standard of living that we have today is because of STEM. The reason we have, you know, companies and all the things we have, this wonderful technology, the incredible med you know, medical capabilities, of course, everything can be improved and get better, but what's going to make it better and what's going to make our economy better is absolutely, you know, leaps in technology. Mm -hmm. right? And, um, and making sure that we recognize and have a system to recognize the people that can excel in that early on and putting them together with other people like them early on is absolutely not just in the interest of the nation, but the interest of all of civilization. Yeah. I mean, it feels like if we have smart people who are told that they're smart and are encouraged to try hard things, we probably will be better off. You were preaching to the choir on that one. It goes back to Coke, right? Like if you think of uh, Charles's, um, one of his fascinations is around creative destruction. This whole idea, um, and, and it's top of mind because I, I uh, just read the book, um, but if we are so big and so successful, we could sit back and say like, we're great. Yep. We're too big to fail. $125 billion of revenue, right. like we're good. Right. But this idea of creative destruction is they actually view it as a race. If you're my competitor, I want to destroy my business before you do. Right. And if I can do that successfully, then that means that I have innovated. I've created a new product, a new service, a new type of organization, a new whatever right. to stay one step ahead of you. Right. Because if I don't do it, you're going to do it. Right. And it feels like a school like a Thomas Jefferson, although it's not explicitly said, implicitly there's this go build things, innovate, like you kind of it feels almost like there's like a soft nudge in that direction. And then we kind of now see, you know, 20 years later what the results are. It's like pretty impressive. Failing is okay. Mm -hmm. Failing is key. You know, it's funny. You mentioned creative disruption from Coke. Another book I read recently was creative selection. I don't know if you've, of course you've read creative selection. Ken Cosinda. You got it. The keyboard, you know, mm -hmm. thank God, by the way, can you type, how do you, can you type on your iPhone really effectively? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can yeah. you? No, I think my fingers are too fat for it or something. I, I still I still struggle every time. I don't do two fingers. I just do one. Yeah. Okay. Right. Just now my thumb will probably fall off. Yeah. Like this is actually like a weird question. Uh, I don't think I've talked about this yet. Do your thumbs hurt at all? Um, They hurt more when I used to use a Blackberry. Oh, interesting. Did you yeah. ever, you're too young for a Blackberry. No, I had the, uh, my, my first like, we had the razors and then uh, the remember the sidekick, the like you'd, yeah, you'd slide it and you had the real keyboard, yeah, the T keys, uh, yeah. And um, yeah, my thumbs hurt sometimes just from yeah. typing so much. And then the other thing, too, is uh, if you had to put a score on the degradate the degradation of your posture <laughs> as I'm sliding down the yeah. chair here, like literally, <laughs> literally I, want to sit up. I, I was like doing something yesterday and I just happened to walk by uh, this like mirror looking thing. And I looked and I was like, what the fuck? Who is that guy? Right? And I was like, and like immediately yeah. you like correct your posture, right? right? But you're like, dude, it, it, come on. Like we're little, you know, monkeys right. over the keyboard or right. whatever. Um, so, so I think some of that, but Ken, uh, his whole story is like fascinating because yeah. he basically was like, 
okay, how do we create a keyboard without the physical keys? We need to do it on this glass. Right. And the problems he describes in there are problems that most people wouldn't really think about. Yep. And like the big innovation was not actually the keyboard layout. It was the whole like auto text. Right. The dictionary. Which is, yeah. Which is fascinating. Right. And, you know, I what I took away from that was less about that specific innovation, but about the way that Apple used demos mm -hmm. to bring ideas to life in a short, concise way. The demo for Steve was the ultimate sort of pinnacle of any Apple inventor or engineers person uh, uh, of their of their career. But also the, you know, the the fact that when they were all in there together, Together, greatness happened. And it wasn't, yes, there was the individual that came up with the breakthrough, but getting that quick feedback from people, um, other like-minded people that shared the love of wanting to make something great was the key to it all happening. And at Jefferson, TJ, mm -hmm. there was that feeling a bit. Mm -hmm. And so when you're you know, 15 and you experience that, you can bring that forward for the rest of your life. There's a lot of TJ people at Apple, by the way. Um, hmm. And uh, in fact, the iCloud database at Apple uses a technology called Foundation DB, which was, which was one of the first databases to break the acid test conundrum. And uh, one of my high school classmates founded Foundation DB, which Apple acquired. Wow, that's crazy. How many people do you think have built a successful company that were in your high school class? My high school class? Well, there were 400. I would say 10. I would say 10. 10 to 10. 10? To yeah. 10 out of 400, which is a high ratio. Two and a half percent? Right. I have a high, is, yeah, is high that, bar is, for is success. Is that good math? Right? Two and a half percent? Right? Yeah. I don't do public math because you know how that goes. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I've done too much public math over the years. Well, it's, right, it's better to run a private company than a public company. You can make mathematical mistakes. <laughs> yes, true. Um, what is the best like three or four books that you've ever read? If, if somebody wants to get into reading, uh, you and I share this love for reading. What yeah. would you say some of the top books are? Well, let's go like one for one. You okay. say a book, I say a okay. book. Okay. So, hey guys, I hope that you're enjoying this conversation. As you probably realize, we don't run any ads on this show. That's right. All the other podcasts, all the other YouTube shows that you watch, they have advertisers. We don't have any direct relationships with advertisers, and we simply create this because we enjoy doing it. Now that we do that, though, we have a team. And if you'd like to support us, one way you can do that is to go subscribe to the Pomp Letter. It's a daily letter that I write to about 235,000 people about my personal opinion on financial markets, business, technology, and Bitcoin. Just go to pompletter.com and you can sign up there. I'd love to have you join us. And it's a great, easy way to support the work that the team and I are doing on a daily basis. All right, let's get back into this conversation. I, you asked if someone wants to get into reading. I wouldn't recommend this one for, for okay. anybody who wants to get into reading. But it is my all-time favorite book. What? And I don't know if you've read it. It's called Gudel Escher Bach. I have it not read it. It is by Dr. David Hofstetter. He, you might want to warm up to him a little bit before jumping into it because he can be quite tedious. Uh, but Gudel Escher Bach is this just insane book about how your mind works. And he, you know, Escher was the artist that makes all these paradoxical images, like the hands kind of drawing each other or like the impossible buildings where you walk up staircases that couldn't possibly exist. And a better book by Hofstetter 
that you might start with is called I'm a Strange Loop. Okay. Um, that one you'd see in airports and stuff. And it really gets into cognition. He also wrote a third one. I guess I'm really going deep on Hofstetter here called Patterns and Essences. And that one gets into how your mind works and how mm -hmm. the human brain uh, uses categorization specifically to chunk things together and reference each other. Um, and so if you have interest in how your mind works, not at like a, you know, so not like a biological level, but like, mm -hmm. you know, trying to understand the brain is, is uh, the study of his career. And he, he approaches it from a, from a, in a, uh, a, in a perspective that we can like kind of relate to. So I love Hofstetter. Gudelasher Bach is his like masterpiece. Um, I might not start with that one, but it probably is my favorite book of all time. Wow. GEB, it's known as. There's like a cult kind of following around it too among some nerdy people. So you would definitely like it. All right. <laughs> I don't know. If I, I don't, I'm not, now I'm nervous. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say two. One that uh, I know you've read because uh, we've talked about it. And then one that most people uh, won't have read. Uh, the Rise of American Growth uh, is to me, uh, it's super dense. There's lots of charts and numbers and all yep. this stuff. But um, it really highlights from what, 1870s to like 1940s, give or take, yep. uh, literally the rise of American growth yeah. and how so much innovation happened there. And one of my favorite data points is like uh, airplanes go just as fast today as they did in like the 1940s and 50s. There's been no real innovation in speed. Right. The, so, wor the worst is actually we had the Concorde, mm -hmm. right? That was faster. Yes. And we don't have it anymore. It makes me so sad. Yeah, it's crazy. So th there's... That, that one's fantastic. Very dense read. Mm -hmm. Difficult for some people to get through, but if, if you enjoy that stuff. Uh, and then the other one is uh, the book we were talking about before. Uh, I was showing you uh, in the office. It is uh, laid out like the Bible. So <laughs> uh, just take it out of a grain of salt. But uh, 50 Cent, yes, the rapper, and Robert Greene, the author, wrote a book together called The 50th Law, a play on Robert Greene's 48 uh, powers um, or 48 laws uh, of power. And in the book, they basically, Robert Greene goes through all these different uh, things. And it's really about overcoming fear. Like that's mm -hmm. the, the general premise of the book. Uh, but he overlays 50 Cent's life events on top of his writing. And so he talks about all these different uh, details. Um, and I've given the book now to a couple of different people. And like they're from very different walks of life. And they all come back to me and they're like, yo, low-key, when you gave me that book, I thought that was stupid. <laughs> but like that was actually a fantastic book. So I'm just going to keep beating the drum and nice. uh, may maybe Robert Green will give me like a percentage of, uh, right. of sales on that one. Right. What other ones? All right. Um, so I, I like to try, try to study people. So Doris Kearns Goodwin is, I think, maybe the best presidential historian. I'm sure you've read all her stuff. I mentioned Billy Pulpit, which mm -hmm. about TR is the best. She also uh, had a couple of others, but she wrote one on leadership that tied together uh, – TR and FDR and uh, Lyndon Johnson. And I didn't understand. I knew obviously the relationship between the cousins, but I hadn't understood that FDR really helped Lyndon Johnson when he was a, I guess, congressman from Texas and kind of identified him. This was like in the, the, the early, you know, early 40s before FDR died. <clears throat> that in late thirties as like a potential person that could be the, you know, a president of the United States. Wow. And so that, that connection was not known to me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was fascinating for me to, to for me to read that. And it was interesting. By the way, she's got Lincoln in there too, so you know she's she's she's, got she's well covered. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was it was fascinating for me to learn about that link, which was one that I had not understood before. A curious mind, Brian Grazer, of course, uh, which is a uh, is, is a great one, uh, all about curiosity and and uh, how important it is. Uh, I like to think that uh, I, um, better or worse. And able to have the curiosity conversations, just publish yeah. them <laughs> while yeah. he has them in private. Um, but a, another book that uh, and he's the guy that would reach out to people, just sort of, hey, I have nothing that I want from you except thirty minutes of your time. Yeah, and and, and I'd love to just talk, talk, yeah. right? And he did it with, um, I think, former presidents. He actually, uh, although it wasn't under the pretense of a curiosity conversation, he met with Fidel Castro with a bunch of like other movie producer people, <laughs> and. Uh, he tells that story. Um, he Maybe met, he's using it as an excuse. <laughs> and he met with, uh, you know, obviously movie stars and right. all that type of stuff. But it was really trying to get and uh, meet with people that are outside of um, right. uh, his world. And one of them, uh, I think if I remember correctly, in the, what, 1980s, the riots in L.A. Uh, mm-hmm. happened, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he met with the police chief like the day the riots kicked off. He just had it on the meeting. He thought for sure it was going to get canceled or whatever. Right. He shows up and like the way he describes it is like... There's a lot of police at the police station right. that day, right? And he still sits and he meets with the uh, with the police chief. And he's like, it was fascinating because I saw what was going on out in the streets. I saw the news. And then like, I just, you know, by the luck of the draw, I was able to meet with a guy uh, who was like the responder. Wow. Right. And like wow. see how he was interacting internally right. uh, at the same time. So that one's always a, a good one. What else? Uh, you know, my favorite business book, and again, it's going to be cliche, is definitely zero to one. I think Peter Thiel just absolutely nailed every possible concept in there. I even kind of have some passages in my head. You know, my favorite line in the entire book is if you want to build a big business, don't build an undifferentiated commodity business. And when I just, I, I, it's like, I think pulled out like in like a, you know, special, mm-hmm. special phrase. And that, that whole kind of idea where, you know, there's pretty much two biz- two kinds of businesses: those that are commodities and those that are monopolies. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's better to be dealing with the antitrust people than to you know be just chopping your prices over mm-hmm. time. Um, and that that particular book, I just I think absolutely you know encompasses so so much. And again, we're all we're talking about nonfiction here, here predominantly. Um, Do you read a lot of fiction? Not really. Yeah. Do you? I don't think I've read a fiction book. This is going to sound horrible in like a decade. So I read um, the Foundation series, which is mm-hmm. uh, a sci-fi series because I saw Paul Graham tweet about it. And I was like, okay. Was it good? Yeah. But I mean, I didn't, I feel like I could get most fiction from watching Star Trek. See, I don't, I, like this is, I'm going to get absolutely blasted for saying this. Never so watched Star Trek. It. Never watched Star Wars. Uh, I don't really read fiction, like yeah. any of that stuff. I would say that. Did the, you read The Fountainhead? Uh, yes, but like in college, years and years yeah. ago. Um, I think the last fiction book that I read that I can remember like immediately is, um, uh, damn, what are the three books? So when you join Facebook, uh, Sam Lesson, I don't know if you know Sam. Yeah. Uh, he, Jessica. He, he, yeah, he, yeah, he put together. The information. Um, yeah. yeah, and so he was at Facebook, and, yeah. and he put together, or at least had a hand in selecting the three books that product managers would get. Right. And one of them was Snow Crash. Okay. Like, you know, pretty telling, pretty pretty right. forward-looking. Uh, and there was two others. I, for, I forget what they were. 
but Snow Crash was probably the last like fiction book that I remember uh, reading. And um, it was like fascinating. Like you join this place and and it's supposed to be, you know, this amazing company that's growing really fast and like all these things and like they hand you fiction books. Yeah. And well, like it, it just like kind of spoke volumes, I think. I think the one fiction book that I loved is uh, Ready Player One. Yeah, I watched the movie. I didn't read the book. Oh, the movie was awful. Really? Oh, I thought it was. I mean, you might have liked it, yeah. but I mean, maybe if I read the book, I would have thought the movie was right. Awful. The other, the other way that you're gonna start to read fiction again, you're gonna discover that the greatest author mm -hmm. of, I think, last century was Roald Dahl. <laughs> Who? Roald Dahl. You know, James and the Giant Peach. All the kids books. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Charlie and Chuck. The problem is, you know, when you're when your kids get old enough, you read this to them. And you realize when you get through the final book, you, you do the whole series, Matilda, Roald mm -hmm. Dahl, you do James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and Chalk Factory, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, and then you're done. And there's nothing else nearly as good until you get to Harry Potter. Yep. And then, you know, that's its own thing. But at that age, the genius of the writing and the storytelling. Mm -hmm. But I did worry a lot about Charlie in the chocolate factory. I'm sure you're familiar with the story, right? Yes. So you've seen that movie. Mm -hmm. Charlie goes, he wins the golden ticket. He ends up being sort of the chosen one. And Willie Wonka gives him the chocolate factory. And I thought to myself, like, Charlie's main problem is that Willie gives him this chocolate factory. He is worth nothing. And he's come and comes upon this chocolate factory that's worth, you know, billions of dollars. Charlie can't pay the tax bill on that. <laughs> It's kind of like in uh, Home Alone. What was uh, what was the dad's uh, you know profession? How did he have that mansion, and how did he pay first class for all those people to go to you know Europe? Right. <laughs> Makes you wonder. It's a big question. Just a little bit. I also uh, was in New York recently, and I went to uh, the Titanic exhibit, which you can take a guess. There was two people who went. Me and Plena. Uh, I'll let you decide who uh, wh whose idea it was, um, but. I, I enjoy going to that type of stuff just because you learn, right? right. And uh, and so we go, and it was actually like very well done. Right. Um, they kind of have uh, all these different stops, and and they have a bunch of uh, things, you know, original uh, pieces of the Titanic, and, and pictures of people, and like all the stuff. Right. But of course, when you get to the end, uh, right. every single couple has to have the debate, like right. if Jack got on the t on the door, right. like you know, would he still be alive? Right. But didn't and, the didn't the director recently answer that and say there was only room for one person? Well, I mean, I, I yeah. hear what he's saying, yeah. but I, I've seen a door before yeah. and, you know, two humans could, could sit fit on through the door, you know, yeah. and then you get into the weight debate, and, you know, <laughs> bad debate, <laughs> of, of course. Um, I have two questions for you and then I'll let yep. you go. One, when you read a book, what is your process? Do you read Kindle, physical book, audio book? Do you highlight? Do you note take? What do you do when you read books? Always buy the physical book and I tend to buy more than I get to. There's what's the Japanese phrase? I forget the Japanese phrase that means there's far greater knowledge than you could possibly have. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we all, when we look at and gaze upon a library, it looks beautiful to us because you see so much more than you could ever possibly hope to know. Mm -hmm. And that in a way is comforting. Mm -hmm. So, I have a bunch of books that I don't read is what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. from Amazon. And I try to order them. You know, when I see somebody like you tweet about, like I bought Paul Graham, we mentioned him before he tweeted about this book called life in an English countryside. And it's just like a, you know, it's, it's a, his, it's a historical book probably written in the sixties, but it's about the medieval times in London and how about, 
you know, how the meals were served. And I have this thing and it's kind of sitting on my desk, like, and I'm thumbed through it. Like, I'm not going to read it, but I still bought it. So I have, I, I keep a constant flow coming that is more than I could possibly keep up with. And I feel guilty when I don't read one, but that's good. See, I don't feel guilty. I, I do the exact same thing. If I hear a book or somebody I respect or, or you know, think fondly of, and they say something about a book, I buy it immediately. Right. And uh, I have come to the conclusion that I don't spend any money on anything. Like I literally have a couple of t-shirts, a couple pair of pants. Right. Like I just, it, it isn't interesting to me. And uh, I don't feel like. Um, oh, but sorry. I don't feel economic guilt. It's not yeah. like, oh, I wasted the money. Well, but, he, but here's the thing is I have said to myself, the one thing that I will always spend whatever amount of money that I want to. Right. I don't care about dinners and this and that. Right, and, and also, right. Books. books. I will always buy books. And so like, you know, I, I've bought a lot of books some months and some books I don't buy a lot. And I have two piles. One pile is I want to read the full book. The other pile is what I think of as the sprints. So it's like a marathon and sprints. The marathons, I'm going to read the whole thing. The sprints, I will say to myself, I'm going to read 10 pages right. of that book today. Right. And it may take me right. six months to finish the right. book or to finish enough of the book where I get the point. Right. But I'm reading it in 10 page increments where it's almost like a, a break from the actual book that I'm reading so that I can get a little bit of it. But like it's either too dense or it's not something right. I'm like super interested in or whatever. So kind of like the medieval meal book would be a perfect. Do you skip ahead? Do you ever skip ahead? No, because if it's not good, I almost get to the point where I'm like, if it's just not good, I just stop. Right. Like, like I'm not married to the idea of I have to finish books. Right. And some books like you kind of read and you're like, I don't know, maybe 100 pages in 150 pages. You're like, I Done. get it. Yeah. Right. Right. Other books, you're like, man, I wish that they had, you know, gone 500 more pages. Right. And so uh, I try to find the ones where I wish there was more right. than the ones I'm like, OK, like right. I'm done. But once I feel like I got it, I just right. drop it. I think this year I saw Lex Friedman tweet that he had like 28 fiction books he was going to read, like 1980, you, you know, 1984, mm -hmm. Brave New World, Brothers Kemmerer Like I did that like 10 years ago and I read pretty much all those. So that sort of encompassed my my sort of fiction mm -hmm. for a long time. And I did them all. They were all pretty good, except the Russian ones were just so tedious. My God, I could like barely ones? get through. Brother, brothers Kemmerer I mean. Yeah, see, like, that stuff's just not like super interesting. Maybe, no, it was, maybe I'm making a mistake. Right. But like, I just haven't. Oh, been I'm anti, like I'm anti recommending it to you. Right. Okay. Now. All right. All right. Definitely so do not read it. Okay. It, is, it was just a long, tedious story with no point. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, I mentioned that on Twitter and was scolded for you know, misinterpreting all of the, you know, brilliant literature. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are many people who deeply loved it and respected it. And I am simply not an aficionado enough to have appreciated it, but I just did not like it at all. Do you think that there's some people who, uh, are like, predisposed to fiction versus nonfiction mm. or is it like something happens in your life? Cause I, I well, let's actually go, let's actually chunk this up to back to Hofstetter. I bet the human brain is receptive to stories. And if you mm -hmm. look at stories, they're the best way to pass information along. Mm -hmm. That's why even across, you know, cultures in different places end up telling similar stories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have these motifs in your brain, um, a great book that I loved was Carl Jung's autobiography. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read that. That was spectacular. And, you know, he would get into the symbolism and get into this idea that we have sort of every human brain has figures. So whether or not certain brains are more disposed to that, 
I think all human brains are disposed to certain religious almost figures that appear in stories, whether it's in Aboriginal tribes, you know, around the world or Native Americans or English or Indian, like you see the same characters kind of appearing for societies that never talk to each other. So that means I think Wild. we are all predisposed to, to stories and characters and these motifs that the best politicians figure out how to tap into that and use those characters and narratives and stories mm -hmm. to, so the absolutely, is there something innate in our brain that, that is receptive to stories? No question. Yeah. I just am not super drawn to the fiction. I love, but like, here's the thing. What's crazy is the biographies and autobiographies. I absolutely love well, those are stories. Of course. Right. But, but it's like true stories versus like the, the fiction stories. And then, you know, my, uh, maybe guilty pleasure is uh, on YouTube. You tell me first what you watch on YouTube and then I'll tell you what I watch. Well, just like you don't read any fiction, I don't watch much YouTube except you, of course. Okay, but you don't watch like uh, any YouTube, no documentaries, no anything really. Not really. Oh, wow. So I am like obsessive about uh, documentaries some of them are like actual, you and I would think of as documentaries. Some of them I, I've mentioned uh, before that this guy, uh, Phineas, is the name of the uh, YouTube channel. Sounds like a separate piece. I, I don't want to waste uh, the next uh, week of your life, but he does these like 20, 30 minute uh, documentaries on great investors. Mm. So he's got Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett and all mm -hmm. the, Warren Buffett's the, the recent mm -hmm. one he did. Um, and they're just like very well done because it's like obvious that this is somebody who's learning how to do storytelling. Right. But right. and he's not like some big production company. Right. So so it's uh, uh, pretty interesting. Um, and then I watch a lot of interviews. So I've got a, I don't know, maybe 20. Can I ask you, who do you think the best interviewer is? I don't, I, I don't think that there's a best interviewer because I think what happens. Well, can I ask you a different question then? Okay. What's this? What is the secret to being a great interviewer? Listen, just listen. Right. The reason why I say I don't think there's a best interviewer is because I actually think people, um, they have good days and bad days and they go through these like cycles. I see it even with myself, but um, there's episodes that I'll watch with somebody and I'm like goat, right? Like, right. like that was amazing. They got right. everything out of that guest. Right. Right. And then there's ones that you'll watch with the same exact interviewer and you're right. like almost like a slow car crash. Right. And my conclusion on why that happens is because you can't evaluate just one side of the conversation. A conversation is give and take. There's two participants. And just like there's no good company culture or bad company culture, it's all about fit. Right. Where you could take one employee and put them in a company culture and another, one hates it, one loves it. It's all about like right. the match. Right. Same thing in an interview. It's called Pareto optimization. And so when you think about uh, that as a dynamic. Right. Now it's not about who is the best interviewer. It's actually about who are the best combinations the best of people. Fit? And it's so like Paul and John. Yeah. If, if you pull out like um, uh, one of my favorite CNBC clips of all time is uh, when Carl Icahn and Bill Ackman jump on live and they're <laughs> yelling and screaming at each other. It's like that's like electric, you know, right. entertaining television. Right. What is that equivalent when it comes to interviews? Um, and uh, I asked actually recently, I said, you know, what's the best like podcast episode of all time? And um I think the person I agreed with in all of the comments was uh, Andrew Huberman said, 
hands down, not even close, Jocko interviewed uh, this guy, Johnny Kim. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever heard of Johnny. So Johnny Kim, uh, I'm definitely going to screw this up, but he was a Navy SEAL in Fallujah. He, he was part of uh, Jocko's team, uh, I believe. He then went on to become an astronaut and then went to, I think it was Harvard Medical School and became an MD. <laughs> and that all sounds crazy, right. right? Literally, as a kid, I forget all the details, but like there was a like a broken home situation. And if I, I don't want to misspeak, but I think what happened was uh, at one point, like the police, like I think it was his dad in the attic, and there was like gunshots, and like, like it was like a like a super screwed up childhood. And he went on to like all these accomplishments. And you listen to things like four and a half, five hours right. or whatever, and you're just like. That is an extraordinary individual. Right. And him and Jocko, Jocko is not only a good interviewer, but also there's like a level of trust. They're on the same right. team, like right. the, the, the ability to talk about right. certain things, the shared experiences, right. all the stuff. You listen to it and you're like, man, this is one of the best conversations ever documented. Right. You know, it's funny. You mentioned CNBC. I once had to interview Mark Hamill, mm. who I know you don't watch Star Wars, but is famous. Yeah, I know he is. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sitting there, we have a conference. I'm like, well, how the hell, you know, what do I possibly ask Mark Hamill, who, by the way, he's an easy interviewer and I'm the easy interviewee and I'm not, I have no idea what to ask this guy. So I asked Carl Quintanilla from yep. CNBC. I said, Carl, you know, what, in your opinion, is the best way to interview somebody and what is the key to being able to do a good interview? He said, you ask them about a moment. Mm. You ask them about a, the, the instant where they felt something or they learned something because when you get to that moment, that's how people get into their own head and open up. So I've always used that when I, and again, I'm not an inter person who interviews people, but I use that, you know, what, what, tell me about the moment when X, when you realize something and that really gets people going. So Carl told me that different a, Carl, different CNBC Carl. Yeah. But that's a great uh, tidbit. Well, it's all about moments, right? One, you know, the moments, it's five minute meetings for Teddy. It's eight minute meetings for Rome. It's six minute meetings for lawyer. And it's the magic moment from Carl Cantania. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but do you know who uh, Nardwall is? I do not know Nardwall. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> I'm about to open up a whole world for all you, right, my friend. All right, all right. So he is uh, a guy who, let me paint a picture of him. Um, you ever like uh, see like people pretending when they go to the golf course and they have like uh maybe they have like a striped pants on they've got like a really weird like 1970s almost like wallpaper style like uh, a golf shirt and they've got like a uh one of the little hats on right and it's like it's a look right that's what he wears okay like day to day but he interviews the world's top hip-hop artists and he is lights out as an interviewer because it's not the questions that he asks. It's the work he does before the interviews. So he's been, and he's been doing this for like right. years and years and years. Right. And he will literally in the middle of the interview, he will ask questions of the guest. Right. And they'll be like, dude, how do you know that? Who told you? Like, not like, oh, you went on Google and spent right. like five extra he minutes. He finds something personal that really gets them going. Like, I told my best friend a secret in 12th grade, and nobody knows that that person is my best friend, and you just repeated to me word for word what the what the secret was. Right. 
how do you know that? How do you know that? And they'll like stop the interview and they're like, how, like what the fuck, right? Um, the other thing he does is he gives them gifts to start the interview sometimes. And there are things that like, you know, uh, I think he had like Chance the Rapper maybe or something. And he like gave them like a, a vinyl record. But the vinyl record was of a previous artist that no one really knew Chance was a huge fan of when he was a kid. And right. it came from the exact record shop that Ch uh, Chance used to go to as a kid. Wow. And so wow. you're just like, dude, like that is that's an incredible not, amount of work. Right. And then <laughs> it's like when I bring Chris Harris to a dinner with you and he's like, I, you know, I roomed with your brother in college. Yeah. 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 Which is like. The world's small. Right. But also. But by the way, if your name is Nardwall, like you're going to be famous. Yeah. And, yeah. and he also he's just like quirky. Yeah. So it's like you, you almost set someone up to not expect a lot. And then you have this like hard hitting, not like gotcha type journalism, right. but more so just like I did the work. Right. And I think people respect the shit out of right. somebody who does the work. Right. And so uh, it's people like that. Right. I, I'm always on the look. So actually, if you are watching this right now or listening and you know of somebody who does stuff like that, like just tweet at me, leave in the comments, whatever, I'll find it. Um, but those are the people who like fascinate me right. because they're able to get information out of people Um that just like shows who they are as, right. as humans. Right. Well, and that's what Oprah does, right? She gets people to really open up. That's the idea. But it's like, it's on television. Yeah. Do they really open up? Well, Do they Prince, really tell you the truth? I guess Prince Harry did. Well, in the book. I don't know. I'm not going to read that. Did you see the, uh, uh, the controversies? I read about the controversies. Like the two that, I, I don't know, maybe weren't surprising or were surprising. Uh, you actually weren't was like he's like yeah me and my brother like fight yeah you <laughs> Duh. wait you fought with your brother and he and he like pushed you over wait how many brothers do you have yeah i have four brothers yeah. trust me that happens like on a, yeah. that, that still happens right 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 um, i'm sorry to hear that yeah but, but that was kind of like okay yeah um and and uh then the second one was uh he claims that he killed 25 people at war as an apache helicopter pilot people are like you killed people it's like he's a combat helicopter pilot right. who was awarded things for seeing combat. Right. Like, yeah, probably. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, I think that people, when they saw like the headlines, they thought that he like walked up to someone, like pointed a gun and like, you know, shot him. Right. Right. And he's like, no, no, no. Like I was like in a helicopter. Like, yes, we still see people running in like all this stuff, but like it is a little bit different than, you know, he's a Navy SEAL and he's like, whites right. of the eyes in the middle right. of the night type stuff right. um so i don't know it was just like i'm like why do people care right like let the guy live his life let the guy live his life but, he, but they the care books. because he's making a big deal of it yeah if you write the book i guess yeah, he's trying to make money yeah well does he have to make money yes right he got cut off right uh one of my favorite stats from last year is i did not know that the queen of england or, or the now the king gets paid a dollar per head of every australian citizen every year that seems about worth it. <laughs> <laughs> if you think, and I, I, I looked it up before, but they've got yeah. you know a couple million people. And right. so like just that alone, like they're getting a $1 tax per right. person in Australia. Well, you know, if you tax people without representation, as they may have learned in the past, bad things can happen. It's just a lot harder when you're all the way in the middle of the ocean in Australia and they live very far away. That's true. They can't send people to Yorktown. Yeah. But like vice versa, can they send people to Australia? You know, I don't think that those two countries are going to end up at war. Yeah, but just like, what if Australians just were like, we're not paying anymore? 
wait, who pays who for this? The Australians is pay, come out of their wages, like a federal tax, like it's like a line item, or is it just like I'm not? I just know that right. somehow uh, the king or queen gets a dollar per head. What, Australian dollar or British pound? I That's guess. a good question yeah. too. Yeah. But like when you start to think about it, it's like, what if the Australians are just like, no, we're not paying anymore. We're not paying anymore. I think would, would the UK really like kick them out? Show up? No, would they just like show up and be like, give us the money? I, you know, I'm not really sure how their whole system of government works, but <clears throat> does the Queen have to sign off on their prime minister in some way? So this is fascinating too because uh, who is it? Ryan Holiday uh, in his latest book, um, he talks about how the Queen is actually has no power. Like the queen does not actually make decisions. The queen does not, you know, whatever. Now I guess now the king. Um, so there's like a separate and distinct government function, but like no one wants to piss off the king or queen. Right. And so you almost have to like rule by influence rather than rule by authority. Mm-hmm. Like very interesting uh, dynamic. It's kind of like running a sales force. <laughs> I think a lot about the military is very authoritative leadership. Like yeah. You have a rank you on your chest. Or, I have a rank. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. mine's higher than yours. Like right. do what I say. Right. Um, there's authoritative leadership for sure in uh, corporations, but um, there's a lot of influential leadership as well, right? Yep. That uh, people kind of forget about. Yep. Well, it's funny because technologies like Slack have shifted the balance from, and frankly, any technology that helps people communicate faster and better I don't want to say undermines, but reduces the needs for authoritative hierarchies. Because if you think about something like channels, like Slack channels, like, you know, anybody that wants to can make up their own channel and call it whatever they want and add whatever topic they want to it and therefore start a movement. So, you know, it used to be that all communications from a company were top down. There's a hierarchy, there's a president and a vice president and a, you know, area vice president. And, you know, in a sales force, you have these layers um, and, you know, you'd relay the message down and no longer is that necessary to do. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been interesting. I think in a military, it, it, you, you obviously still need that in a tech company. It's interesting how few people you may need to run a big tech service. It's a different world. Where can we send people to find you on the Internet or find out more about Rome? You can always find me on Twitter at Howard. I'm OG. So at Howard. And we asked, we also got at Rome on Twitter, but on our site, it's ro.am. Ro.am is the website. And then Twitter, we're at Rome. And then you can find me at Howard. I always enjoyed talking to you. I expect more book recommendations in 2023. I will send mine as well. And I'll do this again in the future. Love seeing you, Pomp.